accelerates hard, pulls away from Lafitte, gains on Senna, and we now almost have a new second place man, but Senna's got the line for Hawthorne and coming out of Westfield. Almost. To a Formula One driver, almost can be a painful word. In this race, the 1985 European Grand Prix, Mark Sura almost took a famous victory. And Sura is second. Mark Sura in the Brabham BMW has taken Ayrton Senna in second position. And it's Mark Sura who is second. That's the second of the Brabhams out of the race. The BMW or the turbo has blown and this is fire extinguisher time and it's out of the car time for Mark Sura who was second. Mark almost won that day. He almost made a life-changing move to Ferrari and he almost lost his life behind the wheel. I thought I'm dead. I saw the wall coming. I hit the wall straight on because uh, without brakes and I thought that's it. And I was surprised I'm still alive. Mark broke his legs twice in crashes during his Formula One career. And later, he survived a fiery rally crash in which his co-driver was killed. I would wish he would have survived. It's hard to live with the situation that your co-driver died. That Mark survived to tell these tales is almost unbelievable. Welcome to F1 Beyond the Grid with me, Tom Clarkson, and Mark Sura, a man with an incredible story. He grew up in Switzerland, where motor racing was banned at the time, but his passion for driving took him to Germany, where his career in motorsport began. As the reigning Formula 2 champion, he was a hot new talent when he arrived in Formula 1. Yet his momentum was cut short almost immediately by a terrifying crash at Kailami. He fought his way back to fitness, only for another crash to derail his career. And still, he raced in Formula One again, driving, among others, the Brabham BT54, designed by the genius Gordon Murray. Mark's stories of negotiating with Enzo Ferrari are captivating. His seat fitting at McLaren turns out to be frustrating. His memories of recovering from his injuries are nothing short of amazing. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Mark, it is lovely to have you on the show. Thank you for your time. You've been involved in motorsport for 45 years. Do you love it today as much as you did 45 years ago? I always think the present time is the best time. And especially because with the bad experience we had in the past with accidents and uh, drivers getting hurt or, or dying uh, at my time, now it is so safe. And that makes me feel much more relaxed being on the racetrack. But what about the art of driving a Formula One car? How do you think that's changed in the time that you've been involved? I think the, the worst part of it is are the simulators. Because before you, you came on a new track, you went out and you could see big differences, who learns the track faster than the other one. Now they all know the track already from the simulator, they know which gear and everything. And I think a lot is gone because of that. And the other thing is because the analysis you have now all these tools, 
I think a not-so-talented driver can catch up with the good ones because he can learn from the good ones. He can see exactly w w how much uh, the steering angle is, where is he braking, and, and all these, you, you can copy that. And so I think it helps more a not-so-talented driver than a talented. But the real talents are still a step above, aren't they? The Lewis Hamiltons, the Max Verstappens. This is the good thing. I mean, the, the, the talented driver, you can change the regulation as you want. They're always at top. And I think this is at least, it's forgiving, you know, because I think sometimes drivers are good, which wouldn't be good in the past. What about the actual art of driving? Because, of course, you had a manual gearbox and in the mid-80s it was a thousand brake horsepower turbo engine. These are very different with the paddle shift, but of course there's a lot more going on with buttons on the steering wheel. Do you think a Lewis or a Max would have been a world champion in your day? Do you think the fundamentals of driving are the same? Yes, the fundamental is the same. It has changed. It was more physical. We had to do a lot more work. We had no power steering. That was the worst, you know. And, uh, and the other thing, that the shifting was, of course, in a place like Monaco, I had my hand was open, you know. I had blisters in my hand after the race. But on the other hand, now, because with all the information they have now, they're much more perfect. Because we had sometimes lap times which were one lap one second slower than the other one because we made a little mistake or we made two mistakes now they are so perfect if you look at uh, watch the lap times so it's different because they are they're more precise they're more perfect we were a bit more wild <laughs> that was the 80s perhaps but well let's talk about your career you raced in Formula One from 1979 to 1986. When do you think you were at your peak? My problem was I broke twice the legs in the beginning. And I think that spoiled my career. Because whenever you have an accident, you have to come back and prove you're still as quick. And I was driving for years in pain. <sighs> if I have to pick a year, I think the, my best year was... Uh, 83, when I still had the aspirated arrows, I think that I was one part with the car. And I remember Rosberg once said, in the rain, I only fear one, this is Mark. And that was a big compliment to me. With that car, I was one part. And later with the turbo, the driving was not so nice. You know, you had this turbo lag, you had to put on the, the throttle when you turned into the corner to have boost at the exit of the corner and it was a, a bit strange way of driving it was not not being one part with the car you had to think in advance what to do that 83 season you mentioned you scored points in three of the opening four races in that arrows a6 confidence must have been high yes yes <laughs> i i know i've i've just felt where well, i could play with this car yeah, it was for me the maximum you can have. If, if It's like you're driving, you have four wheel on yourself. You know, you're one part of the car. It's a bit like uh, with horses. You know, when, you, when you're a show jumper and you're part of the horse, you do well. If not, it's a mess. So it's the same with the cars. Unfortunately, that 83 season, you scored 
points in San Marino. That was the third point scoring finish of those opening four races. And then it was just a few retirements and it, it felt like you lost a bit of momentum for the rest of that season. I, I remember they changed also the tyres. Because of the turbos, they, they uh, changed the construction of the tyres and suddenly it didn't fit the car anymore. So we lost a lot of because of that. Because otherwise, I think I could have continued with that uh, performance. But uh, suddenly the car didn't handle as well because the rear tyres made for the turbos had, were good for traction, but not for the handling of the car. So, of course, I mean, the others had uh, the double horsepower than we had with the Aspirate. I can imagine your boss, Jackie yeah. Oliver, being so furious about that change in time. Yes, yes. <laughs> I mean, I, it really changed everything. And uh, that, was, that was a shame because uh, suddenly the handling was not the same anymore. Now, you did more races for Arrows than any other team. Why do you feel it, it, you were such a good fit at that team? Well, I didn't have many... Offers from other teams, to be honest. One was uh, from Tolman. Uh, I did a test with Tolman. But then I felt, you know, then Jackie came and made a better offer, and <laughs> so I stayed. Um, All part of the negotiation. Yes, <laughs> yes. Maybe maybe I should have changed. I don't know. It's, it's difficult to say. But, uh, yeah, it was the lack of offer of other teams. And, and Arrows didn't know what I can do and they treated me well so yeah I felt home it was a family. It seems to me that throughout your career you were swimming a little bit against the current you've talked about the broken legs and we'll come on to that in a bit but even as a sport to get involved with motor racing was banned in Switzerland so where did this passion for the sport come from what made you want to do it? Originally, it was just, I just loved driving. I was driving whatever I could get. And I remember my father had uh, a Jeep and a car. And in Switzerland, we have the possibility for one number plate for two cars. So you pay insurance just for one. In the evening... Surely that's not the case now, right? <laughs> yes, still, <laughs> it still is. is. Okay. Yeah, yeah, still is. <laughs> so you leave one car in the garage and with the other one you can drive. In the evening, I was, when they went out for theater or something... I was stealing the cheap and went for a, for a drive with the cheap. <laughs> and I started very soon to measure the time going uphill somewhere in the, you know, Switzerland mountain, driving up the road. So I just loved driving and loved driving fast. It was something I just had from the beginning. And then a colleague of mine started karting. Um, I had no money. And uh, so I started to work as a mechanic. And as a mechanic, I was also repairing his engines. I was allowed to run in the engine. He didn't like that to go slow for half an hour, you know, to run in the engine. But after half an hour, you, you go for it. You know, you, you check if the engine is good. And one time he, he took my time and said, hey, you're driving faster than me. So the next race you do. That's how I started. Wow. But then you had to move to Germany. Exactly. Uh, in Switzerland, I, I paid more or less everything myself in karting. And uh, then to continue, I was lucky. I came to Jim Russell School and there was a man from Germany who won this course in, 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 uh, because he filled out questions at the, at the Grand Prix here in he won Austria. A prize. And he won. So he came here 
and he was very impressed about my driving. We had even uh, one day it was raining and we made a slalom because we could not go on the fast track with the, with the Formula Ford cars and I beat uh, all the instructors. So he was so impressed and he invited me to drive his Porsche in Hockenheim for, for a test. And there I was uh, faster than him. And in the winter he called me and said, uh, I did buy a Formula Fee, which was, you know, like I think you had Formula Ford in England and Formula Volkswagen was in Germany. But you have to prepare yourself. I know you can do that. And so that's how I started in Germany. Then the Swiss wouldn't give me a license. They said, you have to do some hill climbs first. And what? I said, no, the, my, my sponsor will, will not finance some hill climbs in Switzerland. I have to, to race in Germany. So I went to Germany. You need to be uh, uh, living in Germany to get a German license. And then I started racing in Germany. It's a wonderful story of you seizing every opportunity that you were given. I had to, I had to, yeah. because my father was not supporting me. Actually, he threw me out of, of the house when I, on, on a Saturday, he wanted to do something. And I said, no, I go karting. And I said, if you have money for this shit, you can also find your own flat. <laughs> Did your he changed his mind. <laughs> he changed his mind when I won the championship, but he saw it on television and said, "Oh, this is my son." <laughs> Probably <laughs> very proud. But, but then you climb through the junior formulas very quickly. I remember actually seeing you finish second at Thruxton in Formula Two in 1978. I was there, watching from the grandstands, and. You were part of the BMW Junior program then. What are your memories of that? And is there a modern day equivalent? Is it Was that the equivalent of the Red Bull program today, the Mercedes Junior program of today? I would say so. This was the beginning. It was Jochen Erpasch who, uh, who invited me into the junior team. I was doing Formula 3 then. And uh, he said, we are looking for young drivers uh, because we have a new model the three series, the new three series, and we should attract young people to buy this car. So we have a junior team. And there was Eddie Cheever, Manfred Winkelhock and me. That was really good. We had, uh, we had a, a fitness teacher and everything you can at this time, which was not, not normal, you know. So he really set up uh, something which now, I think, in more perfect way, uh, Red Bull does. Yeah. And that's the same Jochen Neerpasch who went on and, and found Schumacher and Wendlinger and Frentzen as well for Mercedes, the arch rival of BMW. Exactly. Yeah. When he went to Mercedes, uh, and then uh, he start, did the same thing again. And uh, yeah, he found some very famous drivers. <laughs> but Mark, you then win the European Formula 2 Championship in 79 and you are the hot shoe and you are then uh, promoted to Formula 1. You do the last... Uh, three races of that season. How influential were BMW in helping you get into F1? Uh, they couldn't help me. They said, don't do anything while you're still doing Formula 2 because we want to win this, this championship, which was difficult enough. And then I said, after the last race, you're free to do whatever you want. But there was no help from uh, BMW at this time. And... Uh, it was actually a journalist who made the contact to Mo Nan, that was uh, Roger Benoit. He, he, he made the contact and he said, uh, came to me in, at Donington when I won the championship and said, next week you can test 
the enzyme. And uh, so that's how it all started. And your first impressions of Formula One, I think, were probably quite tough because it wasn't a great car, let's face it. Yes. <laughs> After driving the best Formula Two car, yeah. March was the best at this time, I think. And uh, then sitting in a Formula One car, I was surprised how bad the car was. You know, okay, it was more power, but that was not so impressive. After a few laps, you're already used to it. But then the handling and everything and the grip in the corner was not as good as the Formula 2. So it, it was quite tough. I think that happens now to all the drivers coming from Formula 2 and winning Formula 2 and coming into Formula 1 in, in one of the backmarket teams. I think it, they have the same feeling, you know, that oh, what a shit after driving such a good car. Mark, I guess those late 70s did give you a wonderful opportunity to work with some brilliant engineers. Robin Hurd at March uh, in the F2 programme, and he was obviously involved in, in the F1 programme at March as well. And then even Mo Nunn at Enzyme wasn't a great car, but he was a legendary engineer. And I remember uh, Alex Zanardi on this podcast telling me that he owes his career, really, uh, to Mo Nunn and how much he enjoyed working with Mo. Yeah, you mentioned uh, Robin Hurt. Robin Hurt, uh, I was the test driver for the program for the wing car, the first Formula 2 wing car March built. And I was testing all winter. I spent all my time in Oxford and uh, being always ready to go if the weather was nice for uh, testing. <laughs> I'm guessing you didn't get much running then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we went to all the tracks, to Snetterton and all the these tracks which were available. So I learned a lot about these wing cars. And uh, yeah, later, Monan. Monan was, for me, the best engineer because he came just down to the point. What is your feeling? And I said, oh, yeah, the car is doing this and this and this and this. And said, hmm, maybe you need a stiffer roll bar. You know, like, come on, it, it must be, you have to change everything. But he was really good to, to find out listen to me what he has to do on the car the problem was when i was driving for him they had no money and we we were we had a race to race deal you know i i, I tried to find sponsorship and i, I remember one time uh, i found uh, fifty thousand, which was just enough to get the cosford engine out of the rebuild to get to buy the, the engine out i mean this this was very tough and that's a shame because i could have done a lot more with monan and uh but there was no money around. Yeah. What was it like for a young driver coming in to Formula One at the end of 79? And what were the establishment like with you? The, the Schecters, the, the Villeneuves, the Arnoux? Were they friendly? What was the atmosphere like in the paddock back then? I think it was more colleagues than they are now. Because, because uh, uh, there, was, there was something which kept us together was the danger. Yeah, it was a lot of talking at this time about uh, the safety, which was uh, really not a, because we had these wing cars and the weak alu chassis. I mean, it was it was just uh, you had a corner speed uh, nearly as high as now because we had. Uh, I think Frank Turney once told me we had four and a half g as well in the corners with aluminium chassis. You know, bending and <laughs> some. I remember. Uh, sometimes the steering locked, you know, like because it was too much force and uh, you could feel it on the steering because uh, it bending everything on the car. So safety was, uh, 
was something we always discussed and kept us together. I'm just thinking of that bending aluminium chassis. I mean, it sounds absolutely bonkers. What was your attitude to the danger? I, as I, when I started in Formula One, I broke my legs twice uh, in an accident in Kailami. Once was a brake failure and the other one was rear suspension broke because also my fault because we felt with harder springs the car was better traction which was a bit strange but you know things like that happen and they said okay do we have even harder springs they said yeah but it's a big step harder Dave was was that I was the engineer and uh, I said okay uh, let's try it but then the suspension collapsed because it was too hard for the suspension. So the rocker arm broke and, and I went off and broke my legs again. So, yeah, it was the, the technique was not so perfect as now. I mean, now it's a big surprise if a suspension breaks. At this time, it was quite often. About those leg-breaking crashes at Kailami, first of all, was it the same corner both times in both 1980 <laughs> and 82. No, it was two corners separate. <laughs> but it was yeah, nearly nearly not far away. <laughs> but look, how tough was the recuperation after the first one? Let's talk 1980. It's your first full season of Formula 1. Third race of the season, I think it was. You have this crash. How much of a setback was it and how tough was it? to get yourself back in the cockpit? The first crash was, uh, I thought I'm dead. I saw the wall coming, I hit the wall straight on because uh, without brakes and I thought that's it. And I was surprised I'm still alive. And then of course, you go to hospital, uh, you feel sorry for yourself and then you want to come back. You want to come back and prove you're still uh, fit and strong enough to do it. After the second accident, it was worse because I knew exactly what's coming now with the operation, with, with the training again in the gym to get fit again, pain while walking or braking in the car. You have, have to drive with painkillers again. And uh, the second time was much harder. The first crash, how long were you in hospital in South Africa? When could you come back to Europe? The people in South Africa, that was very very hard they said we cannot operate these legs they are too the breaking is too complicated what the were they suggesting that sending me to switzerland because they had some sort of a meeting with doctors and they showed the latest what they can do how to put a, a broken ankle together and there was a swiss who who showed a new technique with metal and everything so no plaster, just with metal bolting everything together. At this time, there was a, a big step forward. And uh, they said, we know a doctor in Switzerland who can do it. It was by luck Switzerland, you know. And so uh, after, I think I was there for four or five days, maybe one week. And then they sent me back to Switzerland in, in the plane. I needed six, six seats lying down in the... So... I was happy to go back to Switzerland, but of course the shock when they say we cannot do it is too complicated. We will, you will not be able to walk uh, the rest of your life if we do it. How did those two crashes affect your speed in the car? The problem was uh, I lost some movement in my legs. And because of that, I was not so quick going from the throttle to the brakes. 
And I was, I was insecure on a bumpy track. You come with 300 to the corner and you have to be sure you get the brake pedal. At this time, we were braking with the right foot because we had the clutch as well. The pedal. We had three pedals. So to, to go from flat on the throttle to the brakes, it took more time than for other people. And I think that's where I lost a little bit. Later, I learned that you can change gears down in a, in a, with a, with a Hewland uh, gearbox or with a, with a Formula One gearbox, also with, uh, without using the clutch. If you blist with the right, the refs in the right moment, and I started to brake on the left foot. I learned that in rallying. So you must have been one of the first left foot breakers in Formula One. Yes, I was for sure. And I didn't tell nobody because I was afraid if I ever break a gearbox, they will say it's because you're breaking with the left foot and you don't use the clutch. I'd love to know when they were rebuilding a gearbox from Mark Sewer's cars, whether once you started left foot braking, what were the cogs like? Were they were they more worn and you know? I, I haven't never heard anything about that, and I never had a broken gearbox to be honest. So uh, it makes me confident. But I I did it with my road car. I mean, a synchronized gearbox it was a disaster to do it. But with with uh, the straight gears, it's much just cluck, it goes in. It, it it was actually much easier than I thought. But that made me confident again. When, uh, when I had this, this hesitating, you know, from the throttle to the, to the brakes. Yeah. The second crash uh, in 82 took place during pre-season testing and you just joined Arrows. Um, how did that crash affect your relationship with the team, with Jackie Oliver? Because uh, finally they, they came to the, the hospital and said, uh, you know, the rocker arm broke, which, which was very important because... Before with uh, Günther Schmidt with the ATS, with the first crash, they never confirmed that we had a brake problem. Even I came to the pit and said, I have a long pedal. And they said, can you, can you go and, and do one time with, with, with soft tires? Because so we are qualified. Because there was Friday qualifying and Saturday. And if it rains on Saturday, you cannot qualify. So they sent me out with a brake problem. And then with the soft tires, the problem was worse because it was more G-force. Anyway, uh, Arrows was straight. They said, yeah, no, we, we've seen the problem. Sorry, that was uh, the rocker arm broke. And that, so we was never a problem with them. So psychologically, that's good for you as well. Very good for me, yeah. yeah. And, and, and also, because they didn't do very well when I was in hospital, they were fighting to qualify the car. I came out of hospital and qualified it the first time in, back in the car. And uh, so... Not only that, Mark, you finished seventh. Yes. It was the Belgian Grand Prix. Uh, you know that, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it was a terrible Grand Prix because uh, Villeneuve died. Uh, I remember that. And uh, I remember also when I got out in the Parc Fermé, I could not walk anymore. And so I, I was standing there and talking to people and I was waiting for people disappear so I can limp back to, <laughs> to the paddock. What was the sense of satisfaction that you felt to get back in the car and finish seventh? Or was everything overshadowed by what had happened the day before with Gilles Villeneuve's death? You know, it's a shock. And, and then, of course, we are all egoists, you know. 
first is is your problem is the biggest problem is not what the other have so yeah in a moment it was a shock but uh, the next day is your race and that's it were you ever in the running to replace Villeneuve at Ferrari yes I was I think Enzo Ferrari would have admired your heroics that day yeah at, at Zolder yeah it's interesting you mentioned that after Zolder Daniela Audetto which was a uh, race director at uh, Ferrari before and he was working with us for an Italian sponsor so he was with Arrows he came to me and said uh, Enzo called me and uh, I can get you a drive at Ferrari uh, you want to do that I said yes but I have a contract with Arrows and uh, then he said I want half of your money <laughs> Audetto, what's up? That was Daniele Audetto. <laughs> I want half of your money if I can make this deal. And I said, well, the money I, I'm having from the spon my private sponsor now. Yes, from everything. I said, okay. You know, I ne maybe never get such a chance anymore. So we went to Jackie Oliver and they were discussing it. And they said, at this time we had, I think, even tires. And... Ferrari had Goodyear tires and he said when Ferrari can organize us Goodyear tires we will let Mark go and the answer from Enzo was we you don't make any deals with me that was my chance <laughs> with Ferrari was gone did you ever actually get to speak to Enzo himself no it was via Daniele yeah did I read that the previous year there maybe was an opportunity with McLaren as well? Yes, yes. Actually, it was uh, before the race. I was driving for uh, Theodore at this time, very unhappy. And Ron Dennis called me and said, uh, it was before the Austrian Grand Prix. Ron Dennis called me and said, uh, maybe we can get you into our car. But it has to be very secret because it's a very political thing to get rid of the Cesaris. One evening at eight o'clock, I, I went to the factory. There was Ron Dennis and two mechanics. That's it. And we made a seat. That was in the week before Austrian Grand Prix. And I went very excited to Austria. Then Ron called me just the day before first practice. Called me, sorry, we did not manage to get rid of the Jesuits because you know the connection with Marlboro. And they, they, will, they will cut the Marlboro money if we do something like that, and, or a part of the Marlboro money, whatever. So I had to go back in the, in the Theodore. Theodore. God, it's, it's funny how careers can get so close and yes, get so yes, far, Yes, yes, it could it? have been so much difference, yeah. Mark, let's talk about what I think is your best opportunity in Formula One. It came with Brabham in 85. You finished fourth at Monza that year. You looked set for a, a podium at Brands Hatch in the European Grand Prix until your, I think it was your turbo let go very late in the race. How do you reflect on that 85 season? First of all, I was not ready because uh, I didn't have a drive in the beginning of the season. And uh, I started to work as a commentator. <laughs> but I did uh, long distance racing with uh, Porsche Kramer. So I had a job and I was working on my rally program, which my, was my love. But of course, I always felt, you know, 
it's not fair that I never had a chance to drive one of these cars, you know, twice I was very close to get a drive. And I remember Bernie said to me at Monaco, I think it was, do you don't want to drive anymore? And I says, yes, I want to drive. I still have something open, you know, I still have uh, the bill open, we say. Yeah. And uh, some time after, I uh, got a call from Herbie Blash, and he said, uh, you can drive the next race without testing, without anything. <laughs> it was this spa race which was cancelled because the, the asphalt broke up. So I, without anything, after half a year not driving a Formula One car, or more than half a year, you know, I was not really good prepared when I came to, uh, to Brabham. But did you even think about saying no? Or did you say yes immediately to Herbie? Yes, I said yes. And then said, OK, I give you, I give you to Bernie. And then uh, we talked about not even how money or anything. I just, yeah, you want to do it? Yes, I want to do it. I, I, but this is my chance. And but you're a racing driver. Are you telling me you didn't talk about money before getting in the car? No, I just wanted to drive. This is, maybe this is one of my mistakes because I love driving. I love driving and that's I think that's why I was able to drive so many years for, for let's say, second-class teams, you know, with, with Theodore, with Ensign, with also Arrows at some stages was not really a, a good car. It was because I just love driving. I wanted to do that. How good and then was the BT54? Uh, for me, with the Pirelli tyres, it was a beast. And I think Francois Heno, who had to drive uh, until mid-season, he spun on the straight with this car. And, and Bernie said to him, uh, you better give up racing before you kill yourself. <laughs> Even he brought some sponsorship into the team and Bernie was really worried about him. And... I was able to drive the car, I was able to cope with these problems, but it took me a while to feel well. The other thing was, there was the chassis I got was weak. You could not feel any changes on the car. And the problem was, you come have a race-to-race pace. Because suddenly, I was testing at Silverstone one day, and then Herbie came and said, sorry, tomorrow Emmanuel Piro will test the car. So, because I think Olivetti made pressure to have an Italian driver or I don't know. And, Piro and they was, were the main sponsor, weren't they? Yeah. Yes, yes. So, uh, suddenly, and you know, if he told me before, I would go for a time. But it was testing and, you know, next day, to, what, to, what, what are we doing tomorrow? Sorry, tomorrow Emmanuel Piro is driving. I haven't done a good time. But Piro didn't beat my time, so it was <laughs> even even without trying. So that was good. So I, I stayed in the car. But with that, to come and say something wrong with the chassis, I want a new chassis. Now, I talked with Gordon Murray about it and explained him what the chassis is doing. And I said, yeah, maybe we will have a new chassis for Nelson and you can have his spare car. This spare car I got in Brands Hatch. And from then on, I was there. In Monza, I finished fourth. I should have finished third. I, I had so tire vibration, I couldn't read the, the bit board. So I had fuel for one lap more. I saved fuel for one lap more. I could have overtaken him because I had enough fuel to overtake Senna. But 
then the flag came and I saw this one more lap. Adelaide, in Adelaide I was fighting with, with, uh, with Lauda and Prost for third position. So yeah, after, after I changed the chassis I was there. And for me it was very good to, for myself. I could show I can do it, even with the bad luck I never finished in one of these positions. Tell us a little bit more about working with the design genius Gordon Murray. I have a nice story. <laughs> One time, I think it was Sandford, where Nelson and I both have, were not happy with the car. And, uh, you know, we sometimes get out of the car and you say, how is your car? You have this problem as well. And so, yeah, and we have to, we have to uh, speak to Gordon about it. Something is wrong here, yeah? Where is Gordon? And we went to the motorhome. He was not there. We went to the truck. He was sitting in the back of the truck reading a book, How to Be a Musician. <laughs> of course. <laughs> of course. He was But he was passionate. a genius. He was a genius. Yeah. He could, he could, I think because he had some distance to the, to all of that, he could make the right decisions. He knew exactly what's going on, but <laughs> it was a strange way doing it. Yeah. Did you feel that Brabham was a one-car team, really? Oh, yes, it was. I remember one, we went to Detroit. I did some testing for, uh, for Pirelli in, the, in the, the first session. I had some tires I, I should try. I decided these are the tires. And uh, they had three sets, so, or five sets, I don't know, but limited. And they said, oh, this is the tire I want. I feel very well with these tires. And I was faster than Nelson. Nelson came. What tires did he have? I want these tires, but not the same. All. So I had to try. And he got them. Yeah, he got them. Yeah, yeah. That was that was. Uh, That's yeah, tough. It was a one-man team, but correct, because I have to say, Nelson was the first driver, which could go out, and give me one second, in the first uh, time lap, for in qualifying, for example. I improved in the second run, but he went out and did this time, which was two seconds. We had the qualifying tires at this time. was two seconds faster than we did the, in the free practice. And he just went out and did it. And I maybe improved by one second, and then the next run I improved a bit more. But he just could go out and get everything out of the car, out of the tires. I had to say this is the first time I met somebody who just can drive faster than me. I have to admit that. And so he deserved it, that he was the number one. Was there ever a discussion about staying with the team for 86? I think the pressure from Olivetti made the decision very clear. There were two Italians after that, you know. I think uh, I had the feeling before when, when Piero was uh, in discussion that uh, after losing, losing PK. Uh, the year after, you know, then then they had to take Italian to keep uh, Olivetti happy. Mark, can I take you back to a question I asked you very near the start of this chat, which was when were you at your peak? I think there's a strong argument to say that you were at your peak in 85. The end of 85, when you got PK's old chassis. Yes, I was, as I said, in 83. I felt uh, one with my car. And then I had some, yeah, with the turbo, which was, you know, was a strange 
driving. I, I could drive the car. I had no problem with the power. I, I could handle that. What was it like to drive a thousand brake horsepower BMW brutal turbo? You can imagine that up to fourth gear, you had wheel spin. So when you got on the straight and put the fifth gear, was the first time you really could floor it. And it went. And, and uh, then you put six gear and the, that was the end of the straight. The straight was never long enough. <laughs> that, that was the feeling you had. So it's always to put the power down because it came at the BMW, it came all together. So this, was there quite a bit of lag and then yes, suddenly... Lag, and then you had too much. So, for example, getting out of the corner, you had to accelerate to, to build up boost. And when it came, you had to go back with the throttle. Otherwise, you spin uh, out, out of the corner or you had wheel spin. Uh, so it was like uh, feeding at the right moment, you know, putting the foot down to fill up the turbo but when the turbo boost came you had to lift off because otherwise you had wheel spin and destroy the rear tires immediately but it was the most impressive thing and paul roche once said when i was driving at brabham which we were allowed to to just close the wastegate just turn it and he said we had 1430 horsepower in this lap but oh, it only went for one lap. <laughs> well, and then it would go bang. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And they put, uh, which we called a, a killer problem, we called it, uh, a chip in, which gave him more fuel. So to cool the, the piston with, with fuel. So we, it was always a black smoke coming out like a, an airplane, you know. <laughs> so which racetracks did you experience that 1400 brake horsepower? Can you remember, is there one lap Le in? Castellet. Le Castellet, I remember. Uh, because uh, we had we had on, on on sea level on sea level you have the full power. Uh, Kailami I I remember as well. It was like uh, oh finally I have a straight which I can use the power. <laughs> I was I was really impressive. I, but at the end of the straight you have to break uh, 200 meters with such a speed, you know. But uh, it was nice the acceleration when you really could put fifth gear and go for it, you know this. Like, uh, you take off. It was like, now next step is take off. <laughs> but the one thing those performances in late 85 did for you is is you were back, you know, in the market and Jackie Oliver came knocking again, didn't he? Yes, yes, they wanted me back. <laughs> and also because of the sponsor. You know, the sponsor has always uh, had very big influence. It was uh, this Barclay cigarette, which was uh, mainly in Belgium and, and uh, Switzerland. So for the market, uh, having Gerhard Berger, which came in via BMW, he was not the right man for them. And uh, Berger got another offer and then suddenly one seat was free again. So and despite not being able to do any of your early racing in Switzerland, you were very much a Swiss driver when it came to sponsorship. Yeah, but I mean, I... In the beginning, I was trying to find sponsorship all the time. I had uh, a secretary which did nothing else than, than just, uh, you know, get in contact with some possible sponsors. And yeah, some races with Ensign, we had to race to race sponsors, you know. For somebody gave 50,000, one gave 100,000. Now you would put a zero more. But anyway, it was money and it was just for the running cost, it was enough. Yeah, and all ended when Barclay came and said, we have a new cigarette. Is the test market will be Switzerland. 
and Belgium. And we would love to, you know, to do that with you in Formula One. And from this moment on, I had no more sponsorship problems. The first time, but it, it took a long time until I got rid of the problem with the sponsor. And does it make you a better racing driver not having that nagging doubt about money in the back of your mind? Yes, yes, definitely. Because uh, when you're always worried about uh, can you do the next race or do they have to take another driver which brings money, this worries you. It doesn't make you free because you cannot plan. You know, you, you try to give your best and yeah, will I do the next race? <laughs> this is hard. This is hard. Yeah. You mentioned a little bit earlier rallying and saying how passionate you were about it. When did you start rallying? I think it was 84. I had uh, a request from, uh, from an organizer of the Gotthard Rally, a Swiss rally. And he said, uh, would you drive? Uh, we have a car, a Renault 5 Turbo for you. Would you like to drive that? I said, oh, I always wanted to do a rally. So I did. And I was leading the rally. My very first rally, I'd, I was leading Swiss Championship, okay, but still, you know. I love that. I love that uh, driving on gravel and on all these things. I did actually best times on gravel, which was a surprise for me, because on asphalt you expected from me, but no, I, I, because I enjoyed so much. I was always loved to drive on snow. It was, it was a passion. Sometimes when it was snowing in Switzerland, I went out in the night to drive on snowy roads. And is that why you were so good in the wet on a racetrack? Yes, yes. To drive a car on, on slippery ground, you tell the car to slide and not the car is sliding away from you. In the dry, it's the opposite. In the dry, you don't want to slide, you know, and when it slides away, it's a mistake. But if you're on a slippery ground, or on snow or, or in the rain, you tell the car to slide. You decide how much it slides. You have to be active to do that. And I love that. Did the rallying affect your racing in a negative way at all? I don't think so. I don't think so. In rally, you, you learn to cope with all the conditions. For example, when, you, when, the, when the tires go off, uh, or in rally is, for example, sometimes you have uh, gravel tires and you get on asphalt, so you cannot destroy the gravel tires. So you learn a lot how it, for the art of driving, you know, not not uh, to go over the limit. In Formula One, you always go to the limit, but of course there are situations where the tire go off, and then you should take care of it. And in rallying, it is much more extreme. You have you have tire go off or 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 uh, yeah driving driving with uh, with snow tires on 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 asphalt when when there's no more snow uh, is horrible you know and you you learn to cope with this situation so I think it helps as a in Formula One. David Richards came on the podcast and he said that the most gifted driver he's had on his books at ProDrive slash BAR and Benetton as well. And so from a Formula One point of view, Jacques Villeneuve, Jensen Button, Colin McRae in the rally, he said the most talented driver he's had on his books, Sebastian Loeb. Uh, can imagine. Yeah. yeah. Can yeah. you imagine yeah. that though, having yeah. done both? Yeah. Do you think someone like Loeb, if he'd had the right opportunities at the right time in his life, could he have succeeded in Formula One? Yes, I think he could. 
But of course, the problem is uh, in rally, they're, they're normally they are too old already when they go in, in the high level of rallying. They're already too old to... I think if one of these rally drivers in young years, you know, they, they do... They do all sorts of racing, you know. They do karting, they do Formula 3 or whatever. The, the, the rally drivers, they know about these things. But of course, their big talent, they can show in rallying. And in rallying, this is something you have to say. The driver is more important than uh, in, in, uh, in road racing. Particularly in the Group B era of the mid-80s, right? Those cars were nuts. Yes, they were beasts. <laughs> they were beasts. This was it was true. And, uh, Sorry to interrupt, but I'm just imagining you for a second driving an RS 200 one weekend, and then having a BMW Turbo in Formula One the next weekend with 1,400 brake horsepower. What an extraordinary period you lived through then. Yes, both were extreme cars. That's true. That's true. The rally car was not really nice to drive compared to the Renault I was driving before because it was four-wheel drive, but uh, no power steering and it was hard work to drive this rally car. And yeah, and the Formula One was a complete different from the, from the power huh? because you, you have always had the problem to put the power down. In, in the Formula One car and, and in the rally car you had four-wheel drive suddenly and which was really nice to drive, uh, you know, in traction. But of course you need a different style for the corners. We had not this uh, clever differentials they have now. So you had, you had to fix, there was fixed front rear. You could have, uh, you could have 75% at the rear and 25% at the front or 50-50. So it was... Uh, it was difficult uh, to get the corners right. And when I think of you and rallying, you obviously can't get far away from the Hessen rally in 86 and that terrifying crash which brought your career to an end. How do you reflect on that even now? It was a European Championship race uh, rally and I was fighting with Michel Mouton. She was driving a Peugeot. So we were on the same level. She was a bit quicker on, on gravel and I was quicker on asphalt. So the lead changed between us all the time. And uh, then we had this uh, special stage, which was only asphalt, very fast, which was my stage. After, I think in the first lap, I, I took seconds off her. So it was clear when I, when I do, I think we had to do three laps on, on, on a called Schottenring which was an old race circuit, you know. I learned later on, I touched something, uh, a curb. I learned later because the, the spectators wrote to me. And then there were two left-hander, a long straight and a nearly flat right-hander. And when I arrived there, the rear end went. So I had a puncture. And I lost it and I went into the trees and the car was in two pieces. I remember for one moment I felt very hot and I see grass in front of me. And I said, I have to go there. And I opened the seat belt and wanted to go, but I couldn't because everything was broken. The pelvis, everything was, was smashed, the legs, both legs. But I rolled myself forward and the marshal who came running he pulled me away. I was burning because it was full of fuel. Because the tree just hit the fuel tank, which was between the seat and the engine. And so that's why the car exploded. 
and uh, he pulled me and pulled me into a into a little river and then he went back to try to save my co-pilot but he, he i think he died from the impact i would wish he would have survived it's hard to live with the situation that your co-driver died because it's your fault anyway you know you were the driver even the tree hit on my side so it hit me more than him but i remember in hospital when i woke up after three weeks in coma uh, i asked where is michelle why is he not coming i i had the feeling the tree hit my side so he must be okay and they didn't tell me in the beginning and uh, weeks later they said you know he is he died in the accident it's really hard but uh, and you're in this situation you're you're hurt you're in in hospital you're not very strong mentally you know to to have this message as well so they were right not to tell me immediately even 35 years later it's uh, it's very tough to hear you talk about that it helped me to talk about for me it was first i had to find out what happened and pirelli confirmed the, the left rear tire was was uh, damaged so it was true what what i spectator write to me they said i think you touched the curb there three three corners before and uh, so yeah uh, it was important it was not a stupid driver mistake i went off because of a puncture even if if i made the puncture but in rallying i think is quite normal you know that these things happened all the time that was very important and uh, the other thing it just needs you need time to to get over it but talking about it did help me i think if you eat it everything and you you have the burden you kill the person is uh, i think is 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 better if you talk about it and your own physical injuries how long did it take for the, the pelvis to mend and and everything else the legs did you know that your driving career was over at that point yes because it took one year before it was always uh, four months when i broke the legs so uh, in four months you just start already with the exercise with, with the part of the body which is still okay but now the body was smashed i had 14 broken bones it was broken from the shoulder down to the legs and everything was smashed and the burns from the fire they hurt the most you know i had my neck was burned it, it was burned between the helmet i didn't lose the helmet luckily uh, but between the helmet and the overall this part was burned were you wearing lost, a balaclava yes but yeah obviously there was not it's not good enough to to save you from the fire and uh, because i was full of fuel my overall was burning itself and the one cloth i i lost halfway it was hanging on the finger you can see my hand how it's burned and the thumb was just just uh, you know was just together shrimping you know so they had to cut out the thumb again and open it up and put some some uh, material from my hips to to put it in and to make my hand working again so that was uh, very hurtful but uh, the other thing is just i mean when you have so much time to think suddenly a sunset is something fantastic you see the sunset i remember when i see the first time my horse i went with sticks to my horse and i sat on my horse 
it was like I'm back in this world. And then suddenly motorsport was not so important anymore. Animals are great therapy, aren't they? Oh, yes, yes. I remember my, my mother in the hospital I was in Germany, she ha hung up a photo of my horse in, in, in the intensive care room which you normally should not do, but she did. She said it's important for him when he wakes up and she ca he can see his horse. That's, uh, yeah, that was my mother. And she helped them, me because uh, they wanted to take off one leg because it was so badly hurt and they were worried that he would die on it. And uh, she said, no, I take the risk. And she had to sign not to take off the leg and I'm thankful for her, whatever. This is, this is a decision a mother, I mean, a mother would do everything to save my life, but she knew me and she said he will not want to be alive if one leg is missing. Mark, you as a driver, everything you've said in the last hour, you were clearly very versatile, racing in sports cars, touring cars, rallying, Formula One. In what type of car were you happiest? I come back to, to, uh, to 83, the aspirated Formula One car was my favorite toy. I felt I could do everything with it. And, uh, and I think the result proved I could fight with the best with this car. And uh, of course, the rallying was something I just loved, you know. I love to drive on gravel, which is probably strange for a Formula One driver, but I never really was so keen with the sports car. I, I did the uh, Porsche uh, 962, uh, Such an I, iconic I, car. Yes, but I I never felt one part with it. And uh, I drove also the Ford C100. Uh, these cars I never felt really involved. Also, because you share the car with somebody. You know, you, you, you get out and the next one in is not what, you your like car. It's not, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, Although you did share the sports car quite a lot with Manfred Winkelhock, didn't you? Yes. Who, who was yes. an old friend from the yeah. BMW Junior program. Yes, exactly. We were, uh, that was, must have been fun. It was my real friend in, in uh, Formula One or in motorsport, a real friend. We met outside uh, racing a lot, a lot. And we did a lot of funny things together. So he was a real friend. And yes, it was good. To drive with him was always fantastic, yeah. We shared a lot of touring car races. We won together touring car races and uh, also then the sports car. Well, let's end this chat. It's been a wonderful chat, Mark. Thank you so much. Just bringing it right up to date, you're still very much involved in Formula One, working for Swiss TV. But I want you to imagine you have your own team and you can employ two of the drivers on the current grid who impresses you the most right now? You have to say Max Verstappen. I think at the moment he is the fastest driver in the field. He gets it to the point. He, in the past he made sometimes mistakes. Now he is nearly perfect. Uh, Do yeah. you think he's a better driver now for winning the championship last year? Yes, yes, definitely. Because uh, I think the pressure is gone. He just, he knows how to do it. I think George Russell is the second driver I would choose. I'm between Norris and Russell, but I think Norris improved every year. But Russell impressed already in his first year when he was driving the Williams. He had this extra. Now he can prove it with, with unlucky. Unlucky, the Mercedes is not winning, but uh, if 
if he would. I mean, he won races already. And you, I don't forget he is tall and uh, more heavy than other drivers. I think he drives with a little at disadvantage. And still, he is fantastic. Okay, so it's Max and George. I'm interested to hear that it's not Charles Leclerc and it's not Lewis Hamilton in, in the car alongside Max Verstappen. When, when, you, when, you, <laughs> when you employ a Max Verstappen, you want a young driver next to him and not an old driver next to him. I always find this combination quite boring if you have two established drivers. And for me, Leclerc is already an established driver. He has won races before. And so I would take a young one to, to give pressure to, to Max. What a wonderful way to end. Mark, thank you very much for your time. Wonderful to catch up. Thank you. I was hanging off Mark's every word. What an incredible man. He showed so much determination, bravery and focus when at times he must have felt the world was against him. He's another driver who had the talent to get to the very top of Formula One, but luck played against him. Every time I see him walking, albeit with a slight limp, around the Formula One paddocks of today, I know after this conversation how lucky we are to see him at all. Mark, many thanks for your time. It was wonderful to chat and see you at the next race. Now, as ever, please remember to send in your thoughts and stories about Mark. Do you remember his races? Do you listen to him on Swiss TV today? Let me know your thoughts and I'll read out some of your messages at the end of next week's show. Which, of course, brings me on to what you sent in about Jody Eggington after last week. Let's start with this from Gerben Backer. Jody is what you call a waterfall of information. Need a bit of time to catch my breath now so I can start to digest all I've heard. I know what you mean, Gerben. Jody speaks quickly and loads up his sentences with information. I loved listening to him and breaking down what he said. Next, let's hear from John Edwards. A fascinating podcast with Jody Eggington, he says. The drivers rightly spray the champagne, but the engineers are the real magicians who make these cars so breathtaking to watch. Amazing listen from a guy who's seen and done it all. Thank you. Well, thanks for the note, John. And you're right, the engineers are the secret stars of our sport, aren't they? It was great to hear from one of the less high-profile technical directors as well, because it proved just how much strength and depth there is in Formula One. And finally, hear this from Gumption. As a young New York inner-city kid back in the 90s, I remember always wanting to become an engineer in Formula One, but had absolutely no idea how to even attempt to go about it. I didn't even know of anyone beside myself who watched Formula One. Fast forward to this podcast, and I'm glad Jody spent some time outlining the path for today's young, aspiring F1 engineers. I would have run with this had someone shared this insight back in my day. What a great message. Thank you, Gumption. Let's hope that some young, aspiring engineers have taken on board what Jody said and are indeed running with it. Now, we'll leave it there for this week, but thanks to everyone who wrote in. I read all of your messages. If you have a moment, please leave us a rating and a review on your podcast app. We love reading your comments and it helps other F1 fans find out about the show. And if you need something to listen to next, how about the latest episode of F1 Nation? Damon Hill, Gerhard Berger and I pick our star performers of the season so far and look ahead to the French Grand Prix. Just search for F1 Nation. Thanks so much for listening. 
F1 Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 and Audio Boom Studios. Until next time, keep it flat out.